0: Thank you, Andy. A little bit of background so that we can get up to where Andy was reading. We're in Acts chapter 4, obviously. In chapter 3, we saw that Peter heals a lame man from birth. Everybody knew this person, and so this was quite a miracle. Peter and John are then arrested and then stood trial before these kangaroo Jewish religious official courts. Rather than rejoice at the miraculous healing of this man and at the excitement of God's people around that healing, instead we read last week that these Jewish religious officials became greatly annoyed at the Apostles because they were fearful that these uneducated Apostles of Jesus might in some way threaten their authority which was primary to them. During the trial, Peter, filled with Holy Spirit boldness, accuses the religious leaders of killing their Messiah and of rejecting the cornerstone. And we saw that the cornerstone was a cornerstone to this new spiritual structure that God was building, his new temple, the church. The Jewish authorities find it ultimately, they're in an awkward situation, they find it impossible to punish these apostles because everybody knew that God had clearly done a miraculous sign. Because they want the annoyance of these apostles to go away, they do forbid them from speaking any further in the name of Jesus. The apostles make the wise determination that they will obey God and not these human authorities, and so they reject that request, and the two groups separate as the apostles go back among the fellowship of the church. That's the story where Andy picked it up. Today, we'll look at the apostles' very first response to persecution in the book of Acts, and it is one worthy of our study, and of our admiration. Broadly, the response is found in verse 424. They lifted up their voices together to God. That's their response. When they're persecuted, they come together and pray. That's what they do. In fact, this prayer in chapter 4 is the longest prayer recorded in the book of Acts. When the apostles and the church run into their first major obstacle In accomplishing the mission that Jesus had sent them on, they immediately go to the one who had charged them to preach the gospel. Now that the opposition had begun in earnest, the only logical place for them to go for help is to God, whose mission it was, whose name it was, whose glory it was, to go to him in prayer. Their example here is a good reminder for us because so often when we face whatever trial, whether it's persecution or just personal difficulties, our first tendency is frequently to exert great effort in our own strength and our own cleverness and resourcefulness to try to liberate ourselves from whatever it is that's troubling us only to fail dismally. We then resort to prayer because we can't do anything else. Well, prayer was no last resort for the early church. The book of Acts repeatedly reveals that prayer is the go-to strategy for this challenge and every other strategy or challenge they faked. Uh, Prayer was primary. So let's unpack this prayer. And we're gonna do that by citing three ways that the believers relate to God through prayer. The first way we see in verse 24, in how they address God. When you see a prayer in the Bible, note the way that the person is addressing God, because it's never chosen randomly. It's there for a purpose. It in some way is setting the tone for the prayer. In most cases it certainly does here. It's not an accident that the way they address God is sovereign Lord, because that really sets the stage for all the prayers. They pray, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So the first way these believers relate to God in prayer is they rest in the supremacy of God's sovereignty. They rest in the supremacy of of God's sovereignty. The apostles had been forbidden by the highest authorities in Judaism to not speak in the name of Jesus, and so this prayer really starts out to be kind of there a way of appealing to a higher, supreme, and sovereign authority. The two signature acts in the Bible of God's sovereignty, and by sovereignty we simply mean his infinite power to completely control and rule over all areas of life. The two acts that most impressively reveal God's kingly rule over all things is creation and redemption. Only God has the power to create something out of nothing, and only God has the power to redeem lost sinners. Here, the focus is on God as creator. The God who loves his church and has promised to be with his people is the God who out of nothing and by the word of his mouth has called all material reality into being. We need to let that sink in because we talk about God as the creator a lot, but we about an inch deep in how we think about the implications of that for us. God called into being the sun, the moon, the stars, All plants, animals, and people out of the vast expanse of nothingness. We cannot conceive of nothingness because we've never known nothingness, but there was this vast expanse of nothingness before God called into being the material creation. Now, no one else even understands the kind of power that would be necessary To create something or anything out of nothing, much less the power to create an entire universe. God alone creates and sustains life. Hebrews tells us that God upholds the universe by the word of his power. So with a word, God holds together the incalculable forces. That apart from his sustaining power would instantly explode into cosmic chaos. God alone gives the power of being. If you remember Philosophy 101, the power of being belongs to God. The power to exist, he gives that power to all things. By invoking God as the sovereign creator in their prayer here, the believers are contrasting the one who sent them to preach the gospel with those who are forbidding them to preach the gospel. Whenever believers discover that obedience to God will bring some sort of opposition with authority or even the government, we would do well to make this same contrast. This will give us some objective perspective on what we're really facing when it feels to us like the authorities of this world hold all the cards. The reason texts like this one that relate how believers are to face spiritual opposition are increasingly relevant is probably something I don't need to say but I'm going to say it anyway, because in the last few years, as most of us have observed, we've seen believers in America, for the sake of Christ, lose their businesses, be forced to pay outrageous legal fees, and even face imprisonment for their obedience to God. Thankfully, it's not happening regularly or frequently, but no one I respect sees the opposition going away, and most believe that the church is just beginning to taste persecution. The North Korean church has been praying for decades, as long as I've been a believer, that the North American church would experience persecution. We can either derive from that, that they're cruel and they wish us harm, or that they understand something that persecution does to a person's walk with God. So it's coming, if for no other reason in answer to the North Korean believers' prayers. For most of our lives, persecution was something that we experienced under communist regimes, but it is knocking on our door now, and these texts become increasingly important for us. We don't want to be unprepared The reason we must have this perspective contrasting our sovereign creator with the authorities of this world is that when we see ourselves only through the lens of this world, me versus whoever the man is, we're going to feel awfully small when facing off against the popular culture and the authorities that increasingly dismiss the church as dangerous, full of intolerant bigots. But the way the apostles open their prayer, that reveals that however badly we might feel outnumbered and overpowered, the real authority and the real power always is with those who are serving God. Though it might not seem like it, the power of the sovereign creator of the universe is with us. Now we see this same kind of dynamic versus what appears to be true versus what is really genuinely true in the ministry of Elisha in 2 Kings chapter six, which is familiar to many of you. You may recall that after the king of Syria discovers that Elisha is giving critical military intelligence to the king of Israel. The king of Syria decides he's going to capture Elisha and so he sends his massive army to Dothan where Elisha is staying. And you'll recall that Elisha's servant goes out and he sees this massive army that is positioned against them, surrounding them, and he cries out to Elisha in terror. That was a perfectly reasonable response in light of what the servant could see. By that measure, they were outnumbered and overpowered. Elisha, however, is sitting there in perfect peace surrounded by this hostile Syrian army, and he says to his servant in verse 16, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Elisha then prays that God would open this man's eyes, and we read, so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mount was full of horses and chariots of fire all around. Unknown to the young man, part of God's massive army had taken up positions around them to protect them. You recall the rest of the story, Elisha asked God to use his army to strike blind the Syrians and all that army, and they're, of course, instantly groping around in darkness. Elisha then leads like little lambs this army to Samaria, where the Syrians decide that it probably isn't a good idea to mess with Elisha anymore and his sovereign God. The point is, by the way the believers address God in their prayer as the sovereign Lord and creator, they're reminding themselves that every breath these religious leaders draw is dependent on their creator giving it to him. Every beat of their heart is under his sovereign control. The same is true for God's people today and those who would seek to control us or harass us or bully us. When we understand that the sovereign creator of the universe fights for us, we're not going to need to be concerned about what the balance of power is. God is for us, who shall be against us? We see another way that believers through this prayer are resting in God's sovereign power. In verse 28, they declare this truth Relating the last time that these religious leaders flex their muscles and use their authority to crucify Jesus. Notice how they describe the great sins of these religious leaders against Jesus as being whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's who he summarizes all of the persecution, all the crucifixion of Jesus. All of that was. Speaking to God, whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. The sovereign power of God they cite here is not His sovereign power of creation, but God's sovereign power in providence. That is, God sovereignly overseeing and controlling every circumstance that resulted in the crucifixion of Jesus. He looks at all of it and they say, it's all your plan, it's all your hand. Nothing happens outside of God's sovereign planning, and that certainly includes the crucifixion of his son. Again, it was important for the believers to call to mind in their prayer the truth that these religious leaders, even as they were exercising their power in coercing the Roman emperor to crucify Jesus, when they were enacting their most vile, wicked plans against God, the apostles say they were only acting out their predetermined parts in the drama authored by God. These leaders surely assumed they were acting on their own initiative, their own wisdom, but they were blind to the fact that they were players in a grand drama written and ordained by God. So the Apostles prayer calls to mind the only power these Jewish leaders possess who now oppose them is power that has been sovereignly granted to them by God. And this is not just true of the crucifixion. This is a universal principle. Though earthly leaders can wield great power at times, they never step outside of God's sovereignly, predetermined, predestined parameters. The apostles call this truth to mind in their prayer as they're facing the greatest authorities in Judaism. The Bible clearly and repeatedly teaches that while God is not evil and never sins... He does ordain evil for his larger purposes. This may sound strange to us, but think about it. And we've talked about this before, but it it doesn't ever hurt to go over this again, because it's hard. This is a hard teaching. We live in a fallen world where evil abounds. It's everywhere. That means that if God is not sovereignly controlling evil, then much of what happens in this world is outside of God's control which would mean that God really is not sovereign over his creation. Yet we know from Jesus that not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Father's will. We see God's sovereignty over evil all throughout the Bible. One of the best examples is at the end of the book of Job, when he summarizes so much of what had happened at the hand of Satan. How does the author summarize all of Job's sufferings? Now, we have the advantage of having read chapters 1 and 2 of Job, where we see that Satan is acting powerfully with God's permission. But how does God summarize all of this at the end of the book of Job? He says in Job 42, 11, Then came to him, him being Job, all his brothers and sisters, and all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Now, we, again, we know from chapter 1 and 2, Satan was the one who did the evil. Yet here the author says, it's God who brings this evil on Job. Now, some would say that Satan was the proximate cause for the evil, that is, he's the closest one to it as an agent. Well, God is the ultimate cause. He's behind it all. But the author of Job knows that God is the cause, the ultimate cause, because he's sovereignly controlling everything. The author does not say that God was passive in some way as a bystander just allowing the evil to be brought upon Job as if it happened independent of God. The Holy Spirit could have phrased it that way, it's not the truth. This is evil that God had in some way planned, because he is in charge of all things, including evil. Amos 3.6 tells us, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Okay, Amos is saying is just as there is no doubt that people become frightened in a city when the warning trumpet signaling an imminent attack or natural disaster, it's just that certain that when a disaster comes to a city, the Lord has done it. Again, he doesn't just passively allow it. He in some way plans it. Now, this is hard because we all have an inner impulse to make sure that God is in no way guilty of sin and that's a good impulse to have. God doesn't sin. He doesn't know how to sin. He can't look upon sin in some way. And yet, at the same time, we mustn't get so protective of God to make sure he's not doing evil that we change the text and say, well, it must mean something else. No, the theology comes out of the text. We don't put our theology on the text. And so we need to understand this. The apostles are also affirming that any evil they would experience... Would in some way be part of God's sovereign plan for them. This is so comforting because the alternative is a world where God has no sovereign control over evil. I don't want to live in that world. This was doubtless a precious truth to the apostles a short time later when these Jewish leaders threw them in prison or just a little bit later when they execute James the apostle. The first way these believers relate to God In prayer is they rest in the supremacy of God's sovereignty. A second way they relate to God in prayer is an example of what we saw two weeks ago when we spoke about praying the promises of God, and that is they rely on God's Word to give them hope. They rely on God's Word to give them hope. We could say perspective maybe as well. Early in this prayer, the believers quote from memory, so you know they don't have the Bible out here, they're on a big scroll, they they, they know this, this is in their heart, two verses from Psalm 2. Now, as we saw two weeks ago, they're in a very real way praying the promises, or at least the implied promises about God found in Psalm 2. They aren't just airing a wish list on the fly here. They're grounding their prayer in the character of God revealed in his word. Listen to verse 25 as they introduce uh, these verses from Psalm 2. Speaking to God, they say, who, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and this is quoting Psalm 2. now. why the Gentiles rage? Why did the Gentiles rage and peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. Now, again, David wrote this psalm a thousand years before Jesus, but they're applying it to this situation. Scholars tell us that Psalm 2 was a psalm that was read at the coronation of the Israelite kings. They would pour oil on the head of the king, which symbolized, they hoped, the anointing of God, that God was choosing this person and that they were ruling under the protection and blessing of God. Now, we know many of the Jewish kings were obviously not righteous kings, but David was, and he had received the promise of blessing and protection from his enemies. So the Apostles knew this psalm, they knew what it was, they knew the message of the psalm, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they understood the persecution that Jesus suffered, and by extension the persecution that they were about to endure, at the hands of these religious leaders through the lens of Psalm 2. So Psalm 2 gives them a way of understanding persecution. They first relate this to the opposition Jesus faced in in verse 27. For truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, there's the anointed one, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So the church saw the persecution of Jesus as yet one more expression of the rulers of this dark world as those who foolishly gathered together to wage war against God and against his anointed servant, Jesus. Okay? So the apostles rightly apply this psalm also to the opposition that they were facing at the hands of the Jewish leaders. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, they're implying that when the high priests and the elders and the rulers were attacking the church and her apostles, they were attacking the Lord and his anointed. This is really important. That's clearly the way they understood it. It says, the kings of this earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, and against his anointed. If you're familiar with this psalm, you you know that this psalm uniquely reveals God's attitude toward those who oppose him. Verse 4 says, "He who sits in the heavens laughs." the Lord holds them in derision. I don't know if there's another reference in the Bible that speaks about God laughing, but this one does, and he's laughing in derision at those who attack him. When earthly rulers attack God, or when, frankly, they attack his servants, the response of the omnipotent, all-powerful God is to laugh out loud in derision. It's as if he's looking at these puny little insects who are attacking him by attacking his servants, shaking their fists at him, and in response, God is laughing, saying, oh, really? (laughs) I can crush you like a bug. Now, when we see this same truth, we see it again in Acts chapter nine, in a narrative passage, that when somebody opposes God's servants, they're opposing God. When God confronts Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road, how does he indict him? He says in verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, as far as we know, Saul never laid a finger personally on Jesus of Nazareth, but because he's persecuting the body of Christ, he was also persecuting the head of the body, Christ. Really important. These praying believers knew this and they prayed Psalm 2 to support and encourage them. Must never forget that when believers are attacked by Satan or some human authority carrying out his agenda, God sees that as an attack on himself. And people who fight with God at some point always discover that they have very short arms. (laughs) It never works out very well for them. Only two of the verses of this prayer. Are explicit requests from God. It's amazing when you think about it. Most of this prayer is affirming a biblical theology of God, that he is sovereign over all evil and how foolish those people are who oppose him. Only after the this is so important for our prayer life, only after the apostles have done that do they make the request that is consistent with their theology of God. Our theology of God will always, every single time, dictate how we pray, and how we pray will dictate how God hears our prayers. For instance, if the apostles saw God mainly as a divine lifeguard, whose job it was to throw them a life preserver when they get in over their heads, their prayer would have sounded very different than the one they pray here. A prayer based on that theology would have sounded something like, get me out of here, now. That's your job. The apostles' theology of God is biblically robust. They saw him as a sovereign Lord and creator who controls all the opposition they face face, and who fights for them. And out of that theology, that theology gives birth to a very different kind of prayer. If when you get into trouble, your prayers only sound like someone calling on a lifeguard That's a reflection of your theology, okay? Notice how the apostles' understanding of God shapes their request in verse 29. They pray, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. That's the totality of their request, those two verses. That's all they ask for personally. Again, if God were someone in heaven whose job it was to just rescue them from trouble, it would just be, God, make it stop. That's not how they pray at all. And that leads us to a third way these believers relate to God in prayer, and that is they request from God what they need to remain faithful to his mission for them. They request from God what they need to remain faithful to his mission for them. God is sovereign, God is totally in control, and he knows how to protect and keep his people who face opposition on his behalf. Because that was their theology of God. Their prayer out of that is essentially, God, we leave these threats and this opposition from these people, we leave that to you. That's what they're saying when they say, look upon their threats. Just, you take care of that, God. (laughs) That's up to you. You're the God of Psalm 2. You're sitting in the heaven, you're laughing, that's yours. Just give us the boldness to continue to do what you've called us to do, to preach the gospel with boldness and with accompanying signs and wonders so that everybody will know that our message is from Jesus and not from us. Their theology of God dictated the content of their prayer. Again, my strong suggestion would be, based on way too many of my own prayers and the many prayers that I've heard from the saints over the years, is that most believers' prayers are not deeply rooted in a biblical understanding of God, his power, and his priorities. We so often pray only wanting God to remove the difficulties of our life. Too often we pray very self-centered prayers that are rooted in a desire for comfort and a maintenance of the status quo rather than for God's glory and for him to help us fulfill his plans for us. The apostles' prayers are God-centered because they simply leave the fate of these leaders up to him. Look upon their threats. That's perfectly consistent with the truth that when leaders attack the apostles, they're attacking God. They're hitting us. You look on that, because that's against you by implication. They don't call on God for angels to protect them. That prayer is not in the New Testament. They don't pray for opposition to instantly end. They leave all that to God. What they pray for most explicitly is not deliverance, it's boldness. It's really important. They knew, as we should know, that opposition from this world is to be expected. Jesus repeatedly promises them and his church In this world, you will have tribulation, he tells his apostles in Matthew chapter 10. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So Jesus' goal for his apostles is never just the avoidance of opposition. A dark world ruled by the prince of darkness that hates God is going to bring the children of light into opposition. Believers should never be surprised or caught off guard when they face opposition for Christ's sake. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This doesn't say all who preach on a street corner. It says all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Our fighter verse for this morning says, When you pass through the waters we will pass through waters and raging rivers. The promise is you're not going to drown. We will walk through fire and flames. The promise is you're not going to be consumed by them, but you are going to walk through them, okay? Because God is the Lord our God, the Holy One in Israel, our Savior. He's going to save us in the midst, not keep us from... That's simply the way things are in this fallen world. Jesus says that our responsibility in Matthew 10 is but the one who endures to the end will be saved. That word endure, meno, hupo from which we get our word hypodermic, under, underneath the skin. It's to remain under. To endure is to remain under. Just remain under. Don't run away. Cry out to God for grace to Endure. To speak the word with boldness, a sound biblical theology of God, shapes that kind of thinking. And Paul himself, his own ministry, his own progression, his own development, is a case study in learning this lesson. He gives us his process in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 as it relates to how to deal with opposition. So he tells the Corinthians, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. People ask all the time, what was this thorn? And they, I don't know what it was specifically, but we know this. It was demonic. It says so right here. A messenger of Satan. That word angelos is also angel of Satan. So this was demonic. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul's first impulse, as he admits here, is, get rid of this get this away from me and that's not a bad or cowardly thing God can be glorified by relieving our pain and suffering I for one am very happy when he is it's fine to pray that way the problem with so many of us is that's all we pray and when God doesn't take our pain away we get mad at him or we become impatient with him that's not Paul Jesus explains to Paul that he wanted to be glorified in this by giving him the grace to endure The pain. He explained to Paul that his power, which is what Paul wanted others to see in his life, and that's the crucial ingredient here, to have that kind of heart, his power, which Paul wanted others to see, would be seen most clearly in him when in his thorn weakened state we would look to him and he would give him the grace to endure. Paul got that truth. When, when he got that truth, it's like the penny dropped, it clicked, he was changed. Totally different perspective on his suffering. It caused him to have radically different perspective on weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. When he discovered God's power is more manifest in him, that God will be more glorified in him by things that made him more God-dependent and less self-dependent, Paul's response by God's grace was not, take it away, but to boast in the things that caused the power of Christ to be manifest in his life. It takes a lifetime to get there, folks, but that ought to be where we're headed, right there. God loves to bless. God loves to deliver his children, and that's a wonderful thing. But God is more glorified when we, by his grace, learn contentment in times of trial, because anybody can be happy when God blesses them. It takes grace to be content in the midst of trial and persecution. The apostles here are simply asking God to continue to give them boldness so that in the midst of the anticipated certainty of opposition, they would remain faithful and not shrink back. God powerfully answers this God-centered praying. Luke says in verse 34, 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So God gives this mini earthquake, which is a common way in scripture that God manifests his presence, and he answers his prayer by filling them with the Holy Spirit which enables them to continue to speak with boldness. This is God's dramatic seal of approval on the prayer. You know you've had a good prayer meeting when you have an earthquake. (laughs) That's pretty good. I've never been to one of those. But then again, I don't frequently pray this way. He instantly answers this prayer, and that's a lesson for us. We can learn much from the prayers in Scripture, and from this one in particular. For one thing, we must increasingly pray God-centered prayers rooted in biblical theology, God as sovereign Lord, in this case, creator of heaven and earth. In many cases, those prayers will probably not only sound much different than the prayers we pray today, God will powerfully answer those prayers when they're prayed to him. May God give us the grace to pray prayers, resting in his sovereignty, relying on his word, and for grace to remain faithful in the opposition to do what he wants us to do for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, this is a real challenge to us because we're creatures of comfort. We have lived most of our Christian lives in an atmosphere where persecution was something somebody else had to face. And yet God, we're just grateful that you're in charge of the clock. And here we are 2024 and it looks like it's here and it's coming. Thank you God, we're not gonna have to go groping around wondering how on earth to respond. This prayer tells us how to respond And Father, all of us at some level are experiencing some sort of persecution already. That's what 2 Timothy 3.12 says. All those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So Father, I pray that you would make me, I pray that you'd make all of us more God-centered. Only your spirit can do that because apart from your spirit, we will go to the self every single time. We pray that you would forgive us. We pray that you would give us a consciousness of what it is to live for the glory of God and that you would give us a desire through the gospel as the gospel penetrates our heart to live for the glory of God and not our own ease and comfort. And God, make our prayers reflect a theology that is rooted in the scriptures and not in our own self-centered desires. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.